The preaching of God's Word then is in, a, in Psalm 51, and there at verse 8, Psalm 51 and verse 8, having founded all upon the mercy of God and having petitioned for forgiveness, confessing his actual and original sin and asking for washing from all of his iniquity. You now read verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness. The bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. It's impossible for us to know precisely what was passing through David's mind when he first spotted Bathsheba, but we can understand through his actions that he thought it would bring him happiness to engage in that sin. And we cannot fully know all that went through his mind when he thought that his option was to put to death Bathsheba's husband in order to cover his iniquity. And yet, it would seem that it would be right to conclude that he thought it would preserve his happiness and keep him from brokenness. But what we find is, as all sin does, that if ever we are to profit by God's grace, the sins which promise so much pleasure pleasure will end up bringing us tremendous pain. It is tremendous foolishness for any to believe that any sin whatsoever will lead to sustained pleasure. We see this at the very first sin committed as there Eve stood and Adam along with her and considered, oh look, if we but take this fruit and eat it, then we'll have all of these endless blessings coming unto us. And yet this first sin plunged not only them, but all mankind into a miserable position. And each sin committed thereafter has only added to that misery. Not only so, but should we ever be restored, our sins will come with a double sting because they will be brought to our attention to see just how foolish and shameful it is that we sinned against God, and yet also will it cause us some sense of spiritual pain to realize that Christ undertook our shame and agony and made atonement for us. And so we see here the experience common to all believers who are brought to confess their sin. We see it in the highest degree, as here David says that his bones are broken. It's not a literal expression. It's not as if his bones were literally broken. There's no evidence of that in the historical portion related to this psalm. But he's expressing something of the deep agony and true pain that is experienced when conviction is brought to us and weighs heavily upon us. And yet, praise God, the same God that wounds by His Word unto conviction is the same God that heals unto the rejoicing again of our souls by His grace. So notice David's request, having walked through, as it were, various ways of saying, forgive me and cleanse me and pardon and purify me, He now says, now gladden me. 
I who have been broken, I now long for you to restore. I who am broken and in a heap of brokenness, I pray that you would heal. And not just unto some sort of neutrality of experience, but as he says, unto his rejoicing. He desires to hear joy and gladness. And we might think at first, what presumption that a man who turns so diametrically opposed to God, that he should be now taking up this request, God, make me to rejoice. And yet remember that this is the divinely inspired record that is meant to lead us in what we seek of the Lord. We're told, of course, that as we ask for anything according to His will, He hears us. And this is according to His will, that we who are miserable and inexcusable sinners should come to God by the blood and the work of Christ and say, now gladden my soul for His sake. It's not presumption. It is rather faith. And so here we have another aspect of salvation. It's all one salvation. But what David is providing us, yea, better, what the Spirit of God is providing us, is different angles, as it were, on this beautiful spectrum of all that is in the riches of salvation to the believer. And one aspect here before us is that God brings us to feel our brokenness because of sin, but He likewise leads us to be restored by His grace to rejoicing, as since we have conviction and the healing of the conscience by His grace. So this evening we wish to consider how it is that the Lord indeed is the one who breaks His people, convicting them, and yet also how He is the one who restores His people, healing them unto the enjoyment and rejoicing of His so great salvation. Well, firstly then, consider the way of conviction, and secondly, consider the way of rejoicing, the brokenness, in other words, and the healing. Firstly then, the way of conviction. We have to note that what David is here experiencing is in essence common to all who are brought to be convicted by God's grace. But it is unique in the particular degree to which he experiences it. In other words, there is conviction of sin that is common to all believers because of their sin. And yet there are different degrees experienced by various people. Some of that is by the nature of the sin itself, the circumstances of the sin. Uh, perhaps it is in the way that the Lord is working deeply in one soul and in another soul uh, more lightly and so on. We see here David expressing his conviction with the depths of his very bones being broken. Scriptures use a variety of expressions. Sometimes a bone out of joint, a tooth that's broken and chipped and all of these pains that we know by experience physically are, as it were, windows into the soul's experience of conviction. And you can see that he's talking about spiritual things because he's talking about the desire to hear joy and gladness and rejoicing. So he's leaning, as it were, in the expression, upon the expression of physical pain to express the agony of his soul in desiring spiritual refreshment. Well, as we consider the way that David was brought to conviction, notice that this way begins with God. In other words, it's God who has brought David to this pain. 
Now, it's of course because David had sinned, but notice that David says in verse 8 that the bones which thou, God, hast broken may rejoice. So we can say that the way of conviction, firstly, is that God convicts of sin. Where there is a gracious work of restoring and healing and uh, uh, renewing, it is preceded by a divine work of conviction. Now, the Scriptures show us that there are different seasons and lengths and durations. There are different degrees and depths and so on. But wherever there is to be the rejoicing of the soul by God's grace, there is by God's grace the conviction of sin. We can see that, of course, that he acts upon the sinner himself. It's David saying, Thou hast broken me. Thou hast brought me into the experience of this excruciating torment of soul. Now, we would be right to say, perhaps to David, well, David, let's be honest, you brought it upon yourself. And David would have no hesitation in acknowledging the same, because as he's noted in verse 3, I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only have I sinned, and done this evil in this sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. So it's right that David, by his sin, has, as it were, brought about these things and circumstances. However, it ought to be noted that not everyone is convicted of their sins. Not everyone is brought to experience what David is experiencing. And so, though it is true that sin is, as it were, in one sense, the reason for this conviction, we ought to see that it's not sin simply considered, but it's sin, as it were, dealt with by God's convicting grace. God is working upon David's understanding. He's causing David to see. Remember, David's going on, he's stepped off, and now he's entered upon his sort of world. We hear this expression sometimes that makes, in many ways, no sense. You know, live your truth, and so on. As if someone's, quote, truth can be different than truth. It's impossible. Now, perhaps what can be meant by that rightly is the misrepresentation of truth. And so, David had begun to enter into a misrepresentation of truth. His view of what was true was off. It was off by many degrees. And he was wayward. And he was in the process of thinking everything was fine for him. That he had covered his tracks. You know, he couldn't be pursued. No one would know. And now, what's more, he gets Bathsheba, this beautiful woman, to be his wife. And now she's pregnant, and they'll have a child, and so on. And perhaps it was that David was carrying on thinking, all is well. What's going on? His understanding is off. And thus his conscience is off. But what is it that God did? God acts upon David by his word. Remember, he sent Nathan. This is in the title of the psalm when Nathan the prophet came unto him. Remember, Nathan says, Thou art the man. And David was crushed by the ministry of the Word, prophetically spoken and powerfully applied by the Spirit of God. This is the way that God convicts of sin. He brings His Word. 
And he deals so specifically with the individual. Each of us have felt this before, if there's any work of grace in our lives, when in various sermons we'll feel as if the minister is speaking directly, it's as if everyone else is absent, and we're the only one there, and it's as if someone is given all of the secrets of our hearts, and it's all being displayed, and the minister has no idea of these things. But what's going on is God, by His Word, is working upon the conscience and understanding of that person as His Spirit so moves. So He uses His Word to work upon the understanding, to correct it, to say, no, you may have thought this, but here's where the truth is. And so when you hear the world say, you go live your truth and all that kind of stuff, you simply remember that if their, quote, truth is contrary or different from the truth of God, their great need is that they would be brought under conviction to see the truth of God Himself. But it's not just the understanding. It's the conscience. The conscience is quickened. And you remember Romans 7, Paul speaks of, there was a time I was alive apart from the law. But then the commandment came that said, thou shalt not covet. Sin revived. And he said, I died. It doesn't mean that I was spiritually alive, but his life was, as it were, going on and he felt himself fine. But then the commandment came with piercing quality to his soul and he saw himself to be a sinner and his conscience condemned him. That's his death. It's not that he was spiritually alive and now he's spiritually dead. No, spiritually, he was dead the whole time. But by God's work of conviction, his conscience was, as it were, quickened in order to confirm to him his spiritual death. That's conviction. I stand in need of God's grace. In other words, it's not just the word sort of in our mind understood. It's the word understood and joined with our conscience by the Spirit's work, convincing us of our sin and misery. You can see this in one sense in the book of Zechariah in chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, and there at verse 10, God says, I will pour out, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. How does that conviction come? By the Spirit poured out upon them of prayer and supplication. The Spirit's work. Remember, Christ is foretelling of the Spirit's ministry who will convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's the Spirit's work that's needed. In other words, the means that God uses is His Word, and that Word penetrates the faculty of our understanding and our conscience as well. But unless the Spirit blesses it, it's ineffectual. It doesn't bring forth this true conviction that is so desperately needed when we have sinned. So God convicts of sin by His Word and Spirit. Secondly, the way of conviction cultivates a spiritual pain. Now, this is where we have to be careful. There have been some at times who have taught that there are certain degrees of conviction that one first must pass through 
before there can be the hope of grace. But that's not the teaching of Scripture. Some have been misrepresented as teaching those things. But whatever the case, this is nonetheless true. That where there is conviction, there is a spiritual pain. And how could it be otherwise? Because what's being provided to the soul that's experiencing conviction is firstly a true sight of what sin is. So you can think of this in recent days, of course, there's all this attention on COVID. It's not our purpose to go into all those debates and differences. But one thing we realize is that one symptom of COVID is the loss of the sense of smell. So some of us experience that. You could have something as powerful and potent as apple cider vinegar and put it straight to your nostrils and inhale with the greatest of force and be unmoved by it, right? But then when your sense of smell is working, you do that and you're overwhelmed by it. You push it away and you detest it. Well, here's what's going on spiritually. That apart from the Spirit's work, all of the refuse and waste and the wickedness and ugliness and heinousness of sin is square in the face of the sinner. But unless the Spirit opens, as it were, the mind and the soul and the understanding to see what it is He's looking at, He takes pleasure in it instead of detesting it. But when it is the Spirit causes, as it were, the soul to perceive it for what it is, oh, the horror and agony that grips it. Now, this can be true in an un- or non-gracious way. So, for instance, hell will be this experience without grace. The Spirit, as it were, will remove all of the uh, blindness and the misrepresenting of sin, and the sinner will be face-to-face with the absolute ugliness of all of his sin, the wicked, twisted corruption and per- uh, pollution that is his own, and yet he'll have no hope of having this washed away. He'll be face to face with all of the ugliness and corruption that is his own. But when it is a soul in this life is by God's grace being brought to uh, relief and help, the Lord first gives him some degree, differing among different people, but some degree of seeing the true side of sin. And that instantly gives a pain in the soul. Because it's both about what sin is, oh, that I should look to God who is only good, only wise, only right, and should turn unto something else that is only wrong and only inexcusable. It sees sin to be rebellion against God. It sees sin to be without any foundation of a good cause. It sees sin as indeed wicked. But the soul also gains this pain because it is brought to see that the source of that sin is himself. You know what happens in false conviction? There's the subtle acknowledgement of sin, but there is the deft ability to place the blame on something else. So, well, yeah, 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 I sinned, but, well, he did such and such, right? What about him? Well, okay, yeah, I sinned. That's bad. It's inexcusable. But she was doing this the whole time. What about her, right? Well, yeah, I sinned, but the whole society was doing all of these things. What about them? 
Notice, again, not to revisit in depth, but verses 3 and 4, David is acknowledging his solitary blame. He doesn't say, well, yeah, well, Bathsheba, you know, what was she doing? And, well, you know, I'm just a man and I've got all these desires, so it's not really my fault. And what about all the other people who do these kinds of things? And, well, you know, Uriah, if he had just, you know, gone into his home, none of this would have continued on, right? David has none of that. He says, no, this is on me. And this is one of the pains of the soul and conviction. I can't shift the blame a millimeter in spiritual things. If my wife has been bickering with me as a husband, I can't shift the blame to her when I've spoken and sinned to her. If my husband is negligent in his duties, I can't shift the blame to him when I've sinned against him. Right? None of these things of sins of others excuse the sins of ourselves. And this, under God's gracious work of conviction, is brought to the fore. I have sinned. you remember the publican in Luke 18? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I am the one. I am the cause. It's my work of rebelling against God. This pains the soul. It's less painful if we can put the blame on someone else, right? You can think of if you were the CEO of some company and you've done everything right and you've done all that you could do and yet someone else who was negligent is the cause of your company's downfall, you could at least have the comfort of knowing, well, you've done everything else you could do. It's not ultimately your fault. But if you were the fault of your company's downfall, if you were the fault of people losing their income, if you were the fault of people's families suffering and so on, well, now that pain is intensified. And it's unshakable and immovable. And that's what happens in sin. When the Spirit pursues us by God's Word and brings conviction, He doesn't allow us to wiggle out of that position. But He keeps it with such piercing, singular focus as to say, no, you can't blame that person. No, you can't blame those circumstances. No, none of that lightens your fault. You have sinned. This is yours. Look at your guilt. Look at your corruption. It belongs to you. Whose name is written on this load of iniquity? It's yours. David sees that. And this is what brings him to feel, as it were, the crushing weight of conviction. Because he sees the heinous nature, the corrupt nature of sin. Oh, it's depravity. And he sees the whole of it is David's. It's mine. That's mine. I am the one who has brought this to pass. And so it is when the Lord brings conviction to our souls. Thirdly, you'll notice that the way of conviction, when it's gracious, the way of conviction, when it's gracious, leads to God. So isn't it instructive that David is approaching God. Make me. Whom is he calling upon? He's calling upon the same he's called upon in verse 1. Oh God. He's calling upon God against whom he sinned, who has shown him his own sin, his iniquity, his transgression, his heinous reality, and he's coming now to God. It's an astounding thing. 
that when God convicts and pains the soul, when it's gracious, it leads and draws that soul to himself. You can see this throughout Scripture. What happens when Judas Iscariot's convicted? We don't deny he was convicted. We don't deny that he saw something of sin. That he realized, I have done it. And yet he throws the money back and he goes out and hangs himself. He despairs. He's under the weight of conviction, but he's not drawn to God, you see. He's drawn into the hopeless cavern of darkness of himself. But when it is that there is gracious conviction, it draws again to God. So you'll notice, here's David and all of his wickedness that he's committed, and God is drawing him in his conviction to himself. Gracious conviction draws to God, and that unto repentance. Now, it doesn't just mean that conviction comes and some magnetism takes place spiritually and we're automatically drawn to God, but rather we should see it's God pursuing His own. So remember, Peter, in many ways, performs and commits the worst sin ever recorded in Scripture because he denies knowing Christ with a curse upon himself. Listen, If I know Christ, if I'm His disciple, may God condemn me to hell forever. Let there be a curse upon me. So he clearly denies Christ with an oath and with a curse. And yet he's convicted. It's a telling moment when Christ is being transported and Peter has just denied Christ the third time and their eyes meet. What happens? Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. And yet that conviction that had begun continues and continues. Finally, Christ pursues after Peter and He restores Peter. This conviction that was in seed is being ripened until He comes and Christ says, Simon, lovest thou Me? Yea, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest I love thee. Feed My sheep. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou Me? Yea, Lord. And so on. The Lord Jesus Christ convicting him is drawing him unto himself to serve. And this is what David is experiencing as well. You can see it in the psalm. So make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Now think of that imagery. If your bones are broken, your body is inhibited from doing things. Well, remember, this is a spiritual analogy. And what you'll notice is he's pleading with God to restore him unto spiritual rejoicing to the end that he may serve the Lord. And so he gets, again, in a parallel expression, verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. What's he saying? I want to serve God. I don't want to serve myself. See, there's a mark of gracious conviction. You can see this as well in 2 Corinthians and chapter 7. Paul, of course, as you'll know, in 1 Corinthians, writes to Corinth regarding the man who had this, uh, the wife of his father. And there was great conviction that was brought to pass. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8 and following, you have the fruit of God's gracious work. And notice again, you see God bringing the conviction by His Word. 
troubling their understanding and conscience and leading them to repentance. So 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8, Though I made you sorry with a letter, there's the pain and the word, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, the selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. There's much more that could be said, but you'll see something. Paul is aware of this and he's confirming this. There is a sorrow that is nothing more than the earthly sorrow common to all men and that works nothing fruitful but death. There is a sorrow, however, by God's grace, which is here called a godly sorrow that works toward repentance and gives evidence from the turning of sin unto righteousness. So one thing we can say is where there is true and gracious conviction, there will be the fruit of that in turning again to God. So one who says, listen, I have repented. And you look at their life and they're embedded and entrenched in the same sin that they say they've repented of is deceived, is without the convicting grace of God. We don't deny that they have may had some conviction. We don't deny that they have made some or gained some sense of the sin that they've committed and some sense that they're the source of it. But it's not gracious conviction unless it leads them to God both for forgiveness and for repentance, which is what conviction sent by God unto salvation does. And so before moving on, we should think of ourselves. When we say, ooh, I'm convicted, or we have that thought, it should send, as it were, some thought through our mind further. Well, is my conviction just about the sinfulness, just about it's my sinfulness? Or is it a conviction that is leading me to God both for forgiveness and for purity and restoration to serving His name? Because if it falls short of that, then it's a conviction that's common to Judas. It's a conviction that was common to Saul the king. It's a conviction even that is common to the demons. Remember, we read this this morning, Christ comes. And he is speaking and he's casting out demons. And the demons are regularly saying, I know thee who thou art, Jesus the Son of God. Have you come to torment us before the day? They know they're sinning. They know they're wicked. They know they're corrupt. And they know they're going to be judged. But there's certainly no turning to God. And there's certainly no desire to be restored. They despise the God against whom they've sinned. And so it is with all who continue in their sin in spite of their conviction. Well, secondly then, if this is the way of conviction, what is the way of rejoicing? Notice David says, Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. 
It's astounding that David should be led to ask this and that God should place this in our very lips when we've sinned. How many times have we been conscious of our sins, whether through, as it were, an immediate work of the Spirit in the moment of our sins, or through the cultivating of thought as we've examined ourselves, whatever it is, we're often brought to Psalm 51 to confess our sins, to sing it with tears, and in that, Christ is giving us these words that we seek from Him against whom we've sinned, His provision of rejoicing that we may be restored. And yet that's the gracious way of God. And so notice, just as conviction comes from God, so with reference to the way of rejoicing, true rejoicing comes from God. What does David say? He doesn't say, listen, I'm going to double down, I'm going to get all these things right. He says to God, make me to hear joy and gladness. You know, if we were to lean into this analogy of the bones which are broken, we could understand, couldn't we, a person with some illness or broken bones for that matter, to a doctor say, would you please make it so that I can walk again? I can't walk. You know, can you do whatever it takes to make me to walk again? I can't do it myself. I don't have the skill. I don't have the training. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the uh, resources. But you do. Would you do it for me? Well, in a far superior way, this is true of our souls, that we cannot establish true joy. Now, we can deaden or attempt to deaden certain pains. We can seek to ignore certain things and so on. But what we can't do is manufacture this true and deep-rooted joy, especially when we've been brought face-to-face with our sin. But what we can't do, God can. How vain for us to look upon this world as if it can gladden our hearts. The world has bought into that. And we understand, of course, because the world is blind, that it's going to misunderstand where there's true cause of rejoicing. And how vain for any to look to themselves, who are the sources of their sin and misery, as if they would be able to find true and lasting joy. Here, what David sees is what is the message of all of Scripture. Only God, against whom we've sinned, is able to provide us true rejoicing and restoration. Now, here is where you can start to see the masterful skill of Satan. Because Satan loves to downplay on one side conviction. Say, don't be so convicted. Because, you know, everyone does it. And the method is meant to keep us from seeing our absolute need of God. Or, he'll so crank up the volume on it to make us think, there's no hope to draw near to God. Because the conviction I'm experiencing is justly inflicted as I've sinned against Him. But what he doesn't do is direct us to the Word of God, which shows us that the sin is far worse than we conceive and imagine, and yet God's grace is far superior to it, that He's able to cause us to rejoice again. Well, how does that come to pass? Well, we'll see some of this in what we were beginning this morning, that we must be as children dependent upon God to do all things. And this is what David's doing. God, I cast it upon you. 
against whom I've sinned, and yet who has shown me that he is most gracious, who is abundant in mercy and loving kindness, make me to hear joy and gladness. God is the author, not only of conviction, but of the restoration of our soul's rejoicing. And so we must go to him. We must pursue him. And to do that, we must make use of his means. Well, notice as well, true rejoicing is founded on true joy and gladness. Now, that may be confusing at first, but notice the passage. It says, make me to hear joy and gladness. In other words, the sound of joy and gladness is there, but I need my ears opened to hear it. There must be joy and gladness pronounced if ever one should hear it. Well, the good news is this. God throughout the Bible is testifying that He's a God who delights in pardoning sin. He's a God who delights in renewing His people. He's a God who delights in advancing His people in the way of holiness. And it's Christ who delighted to testify of His grace. And think of what the Gospel is itself. The word Gospel is, of course, a word meaning good news. Notice in Luke chapter 8, and there at verse 1, when it's speaking of Christ preaching the Gospel, it testifies that He went throughout every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. He's going throughout the villages and He's showing forth the good news and the glad things that God brings by His kingdom. And so, true rejoicing is founded on this true joy and gladness. It's founded not upon our inventing of joy and gladness. It's not founded upon our discovering of it in sort of embedded truths of society. It's rather from us hearkening to the truth of what God proclaims to us in the Gospel. And David realizes this. He needs to hear it. He needs to be able and enlivened to hear it. In other words, there must be the gracious enabling of a soul to hear the Gospel. Some of us have labored rather unsuccessfully on occasion to deal with a convicted soul and to help them to understand the hope of the Gospel. And it's not necessarily, though we should examine ourselves, but it's not necessarily because we're at fault in not making it plain. Rather, we have to realize, yes, we must labor to make it plain and explain and address and answer questions and objections and help and counsel and exhort and so on. We need to realize there's the element requiring God's Spirit to open the ears of the convicted that they may hear joy and gladness. Brethren, this can be personally applied. There may be a sense in which, as with David, we're aware of the good news, but as it were, our souls are not hearing it. It's not that we don't understand it, we can't explain it. It doesn't mean that. But it's that our souls have to be, as it were, penetrated by it. And this rests in God's grace alone. So we come to God and say, Make us to hear that good sound. Think of it this way, children. You could have the most glorious 
symphonic music ever to be played with the most beautiful melodies and harmonies and the most stirring of movements and pieces of music. And yet, if you were in a soundproof room in the midst of that great theater, you wouldn't hear any of the delightful music. You would need to be enabled by the opening of the door of that small room to hear the melodies uh, by your physical ears. And the same is true spiritually. The gospel sounds forth and it goes forth and it brings glad tidings to all men testifying of the way of salvation by Christ and of peace of conscience and justification and adoption and all of the blessings of salvation. And it's pointing out Christ. They're all bound up in Christ. And yet what is lacking is the Spirit's work opening the ears to cause them to hear and to discern these truths. And this is true as well of our own souls, even as believers. We never get beyond the need of the Spirit working within us. It's not as if after 20 years of walking in grace that we can't get to a degree of maturity where we say, okay, Holy Spirit, I've got it from here. I can handle all of the spiritual exercises that our Christian is supposed to do. You've worked with me for so long and I'm thankful for that. Now it's time for me to spread my wings and take off on my own. It's none of that. The most aged and exercised saint is in as absolute need of the Spirit's grace as the first and initial uh, moment of grace in a convert. The point is, if ever we are to enjoy the gracious melody of the Gospel, it is by the Spirit causing us to hear it. Brethren, when that happens, then it is that rejoicing takes place. Make me to hear joy and gladness. When it happens, the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. The same soul that is broken is restored then to rejoice. What rejoicing is His whom God restores. Because He's been brought to see, right? Think of this gracious work. God has not left Him veering off the path, but has gone and pursued Him and brought Him to see His wickedness and the brokenness and all of the miseries that are there. But then He says, now I am your salvation. And He's quickened him to call upon God. And God now brings him to hear the gracious melodies of peace with God and joy in the Holy Ghost and holiness of life and so on. And now he rejoices all the more in God. God is my salvation. God is my Savior. This is why the saints in heaven are so humbled before God. They're the most exalted of all saints. And yet they're the most humble of all saints. Isn't that astounding? That those who have entered upon the exalted state, still awaiting their body's resurrection, but their souls exalted and made perfect in holiness, are yet pictured, as it were, in postures bowing before the Lord and never ceasing to give glory unto God, praise unto God, because they know in degrees that we can't imagine the joyous sound of the melodies of grace. They gaze upon Him 
who is their salvation, and their souls are brought with humility to rejoice in Him, knowing that they had sinned, but His blood has cleansed them from all of their sins. Notice in Isaiah chapter 57, before we come to close, you see something of this in verses 15 and following. It speaks of God as the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always wroth, for the spirit should fail before me, the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth and smote him. I hid me and was wroth, and he went in on frowardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. You see God's way. He brings conviction. And yet the conviction is not the end for the believer. The conviction is the restoring of the believer to look unto God, to rejoice in God. So He brings us through this bitter experience of tasting something. Oh, we can't say the fullness. For only one has ever tasted the fullness of the bitterness of sin, even the Lord Jesus Christ. But we taste something of it, and enough to make us to say, oh, how despised it is. And we cry out, oh God, cleanse this from me. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me thoroughly and make my soul which is broken to rejoice. And this is all God's work. He will lead us, healing us, restoring us comforts that we may rejoice again in God. Well, as we close then, brethren, we should see here what is needed for conviction. It is God blessing His Word. In one sense, it's so simple, is it not? It's that God would use His Word upon the understanding and conscience of the person. And this is what we pray for, for ourselves, Lord, examine me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. But we also pray it for others. So Paul is exhorting the church on occasion. He says that we're to pray, if God peradventure will grant repentance unto them. And so we're looking to God who holds it in His power to bring conviction, to add the blessing unto it. And so we ought never despair so long as God's Word is available, whether to our own souls or to others, praying that God would bring about such gracious work as to convict. And yet, we should be clear, convict them unto conversion, convict them unto restoration. Brethren, perhaps our own consciences are bruised by our own sins. There are seasons, are there not, where each of us face our own wickedness and we become broken. Here is guidance for us to go to the very one against whom we've sinned, to confess our sins, to acknowledge them as as, as David does, to plead the blood of Christ, and also even to come with mourn to say, oh, this soul which is broken, this soul which is cast down, would you restore it to rejoice? And what good and firm foundation we have to do so. For the words that are before us are the words 
of God. Would you stand with me for prayer?